Made for More is a series to help you discover Christ and unfold the way he desires us to live our lives. This young adult series has the next generation of Catholic in mind, discussing the importance of identity, knowing the Lord's will in our life, and living with heaven in mind. This series features local and national speakers, including Nathaniel Beniversi of Exodus 90, Father Patrick Briscoe from the God's Planning Podcast, and Tulsa's very own Father Vince Fernandez, and so many more to come. So if you could share, like, subscribe, and most importantly, go out and make disciples. From us here at the Diocese of Tulsa Communications Office, we thank you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space and ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us to bind us to our Lord Jesus Christ, that every thought, word, and work of ours may begin with you and through you be happily completed through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. It's great to be with you all tonight. Uh, I'm Father Sean Kilcauley, and I'm a priest of the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm going to use this and carry it around a little bit, maybe, if I can. There we go. Um, okay, so I'm a priest of the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska, where I was the Family Life Office Director for the last nine years and was just released from captivity in the Chancery. <laughs> and. Uh, and I'm currently the pastor of two small parishes outside of Lincoln, St. Leo's in Palmyra, Nebraska, where I have about 65 families, and uh, St. Martin in Douglas, Nebraska, where there's about 25 families. And, um, and so for, the, for about the past nine years, like when I was a family life office director, one of the main focuses of what I did with my ministry was to help parents protect their children from exposure to sexualized material on the internet or pornography. Um, and, uh, and then that kind of led me down this road of, of really learning a lot more about healing and integration. But probably more important than that, I'd say the thing I learned most from that work is how to preach the gospel and, and what it looks like for somebody to have a conversion. And, um, and so, so tonight what I want to do is just kind of share with you some of the wisdom that, um, that I've collected over the last nine years or so. And, and then we'll probably, I'll probably leave some space for Q&A, um, or you can say, Father, just tell another story. Um, but we probably won't have small groups where we get together and I say, okay, tell everybody the first time you kissed somebody, <laughs> right? Um, so we're not going to go through like our whole histories tonight. A little bit about my history. My father is an Irish immigrant. He was born in Ireland in this little town called Enniscrone on the west coast of Ireland. When he was about 19, he fell in love and got married, had two daughters and a son. So my sister Donna was born in England and then raised by her Italian grandmother in Ireland. And now she's married to an Italian who runs an Irish pub in Rome. Which is pretty great. Um, my sister Jacqueline was born in Ireland, and then my brother Mark was actually born here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, when my dad was about 19, he left Ireland, or when he was 22, he left Ireland and moved to the United States. Some of his uncles lived here at the time, and he was going to start his life over. So Mark was born here, and then about two years later, my dad abandoned that family, never had relationships with any of those children, moved around the country, lived in a couple different places, and then ended up in Michigan. So my mother grew up in Michigan, and when she was in high school, she fell in love and got married, had two sons, my brothers James and John. And then when John was about four years old, they also got divorced. So dad made it to Michigan, met my mom. Yes, I was born. And then about two months short of my second birthday, my mother died of cervical cancer. So then within about a year, my dad married my stepmom, and they had two daughters and a son, my sister Sarah, my sister Katie, and my brother Kevin. And then when I was a sophomore in college, they also got divorced. So that's how I became the family life office director. All right? It's my joke. All right? But that's the family that our Lord gave me. All right? It's the family that... I grew up in, it's the family our Lord called me out of, it's the family I learned to pray in. And I would pray Psalm 139 before I knew about Psalm 139, which says, Lord, I praise you for the wonder of my being. 
I praise you for I'm wonderfully made because I would marvel at the fact that God had to take my dad across an ocean through all these circumstances to get him to my mom and put their DNA together and make me just in time before my mom died. And if he went through all that trouble to make me, he must have had a reason. And so I started asking him that reason. And I was about seven years old the first time I thought about being a priest. And, uh, but my motivation for that was really that I wanted to meet my mother. Like I always knew that I had a mother who died and was in heaven, God willing. And, uh, and I just wanted to know what it would be like to know her or what would it be like to sit next to her at the breakfast table or what would it be like to be in the same room with her. And, and I, re I remember thinking this to myself and wondering, like, I wonder if Sarah feels different when she's sitting next to mom than I feel when I'm sitting next to mom. Like she must feel different because she grew inside of her body for nine months. And, and I just really wanted to know what that was like. So I made up this syllogism and went kind of like this. I really want to meet my mom and my mom's in heaven. Therefore, I have to get to heaven. Huh. So I guess I'll become a priest because all priests go to heaven. Right? That's kind of how we think when we're kids. In high school, I got really involved in youth ministry. And I, I really felt our Lord calling me to be a priest. And, but the doors just didn't open at that time in my life. And so after high school, I went to the military academy at West Point. I studied Arabic and Middle Eastern studies, graduated in 1996, branched infantry, went to Fort Benning, Georgia, learned how to jump out of planes, went through Army Ranger School. After that, I went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where I had the top three lieutenant jobs you can have as an infantry lieutenant. So my career was sort of soaring, but at that time in my life, my heart was pretty broken because at that time in my life, I felt like God wants me to be a priest, but I'm stuck in the military. And, and so there's this, this standard of life that, that I think God wants for me, but I'm sort of like stuck. There's no way for me to live it right now. And the tension of that was just really hard for me to live in. And so in my immaturity, I resolved that tension just by drowning out the voice of God the best I could. And the easiest way to do that is to stay stuck in sin. Most expedient way to do that is to stay stuck in sexual sin because... Jesus says, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God, and he means it, right? And he means it, you know? And so some of those things, <clears throat> they entered into my life when I was in college. By the time I got into being a military officer, it had escalated to running towards a lot of bars and women in Nashville on the weekends. At a certain point, I was dating a woman. She had a one-year-old child. She was separated, not yet divorced from her husband, and she asked me to move in with her. And I remember that day <clears throat> just feeling my heart sink into my stomach and looking at myself in the mirror and saying, who are you? Like, what happened to you? And I went on this long drive to go see my brother in Florida and I'm driving back just crying out to God from my heart like, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And I heard him say pretty clearly, I want you to be a priest, stupid. <laughs> like, I've always wanted you to be a priest. And so I went to the church I attended, prayed the rosary at the Marian Shrine, and, and basically said, Lord, I'm asking one more time about going to the seminary. And if the door opens, it opens. If it doesn't open, I'm done asking. Two days later, my chaplain walks by the office, and I stopped him. Chaplain, do you know any way I could get out of the Army early, go to the seminary? Maybe 10 years from now, I'll come back in as a chaplain. And he says, oh, yeah, the priest recruiter's coming Friday. Just happened to be that week. So I meet with the priest recruiter and he hands me this packet of papers and he's like, I've helped two other West Pointers in the last two years do the same thing. Crap. <laughs> like now I actually have to do this. So I start filling out the paperwork and then a friend of mine hears that I'm thinking about going to the seminary and he says, oh, you should come meet this priest that I go to for spiritual direction. And, uh, and so I go see this priest who, who's a spiritual director and he wasn't in the military, but sort of acted like he was. He was kind of like over-the-top masculinity projection stereotype. Um, and I remember sitting down with him, and he was just like, Sean, what does God want you to do? <laughs> like, I think he wants me to be a priest. Good, so do I. That means he does. <laughs> I'm like, is that how that works? And then he asks me where, and he's like, where do you want to be a priest? And I said, I don't know. I'll probably go home to Michigan where I grew up. And he just looked at me and he goes, Michigan, I don't know about Michigan. Lincoln, you should go to Lincoln. Thinking in my head, like, you should go to how? Like, why would I want to go to Lincoln, Nebraska? <laughs> and, uh, and so I went to Lincoln really just to check a box. And, and it was one of those times in my life where checking that box just felt like home. 
And so I entered the seminary in 1999. I was ordained in 2005. I spent four years teaching high school, theology of the body, and as an assistant pastor. And then in 2008, 2009, went to the bishop to ask him to go back into the army. And he counteroffered with going to graduate school. He was sort of like, oh, you'll be great. You'll be great. You'll probably be a general someday. But, right? but I think you should go to grad school and study marriage and family. You can do whatever you want. I think you should go to grad school. You made a promise of obedience. Right? And, uh, and so in 2009, I went to the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family Studies in Rome. And, um, and studying there like, definitively changed my life and saved my priesthood in many ways. I uh, came back in 2013. I was director of religious education for a year. And it was during that year that I rewrote our chastity curriculum for our diocese, kind of using the anthropology from the institute. And, um, and I was super proud of it, because whenever you go to grad school, you think what you learned is going to change the world. you know. And, uh, and then I sat in the confessional for a couple months, and I realized uh, like my chastity curriculum is not going to work. Because between 2009 and 2013, the whole world shifted. Right? Nobody had a smartphone prior to 2009. Like my biggest problem in high school classrooms was kids texting during class. So they could put their hand in their pocket, feel the buttons on their phone, send a message without taking their phone out. Um, some of you might have never even had a phone that had buttons on it. I don't know. And, uh, <clears throat> but 2013 and on, uh, every phone has a screen. Every screen is a delivery system for everything in the world, right? You can read church documents, find out what the Pope's up to, go to pornography websites. You can do like everything like within a couple clicks. And so the age of exposure had dropped to now it's between 8 and 11 years old, depending on the study that you look at, right? For your age group, for most of you, the average age of exposure is between 8 and 11. And... Uh, and so I had to ask myself the honest question, like, how do we teach the truth, beauty, and goodness of God's plan to a generation that's consuming the anti-message? So I pivoted, and I started giving talks to parents on protecting their children. And then those talks to parents on protecting their children turned out to be evangelization moments for the parents. And so then I've got a bunch of couples coming in to see me um, whose marriages are falling apart. And so I started referring people to therapists, but I couldn't find enough therapists that were certified to treat that. And, uh, and so I ended up getting trained myself as a pastoral sexual addiction practitioner. And, um, and I started running groups for women who are married to addicts. I started running groups for addicts. And, uh, and about that time, I started giving a lot of talks in different venues in different places around the country. You know, my favorite group to talk to are priests because Really, they're the ones that find out like who's struggling or not, and um, and inevitably, like the healing process takes a lot. Like it takes a lot. It takes a lot more than a two-minute confession, and it definitely takes a lot more than a card you hand out in the confession. That's like my biggest pet peeve in the church, is like, oh, we should just make a card that we can give people in the confessional, because it's sort of like saying, like, you're so bad, you need the card. You're such a freak. They don't even teach us how to like talk to people like you. Here's a card. Go to this obscure website that's really hard to find and try these resources that nobody's ever told me actually work for them. It's not a good plan, right? It's not a good plan. Some of you are laughing and some of you are like, how does he know, right? Like, it's just kind of how it goes. And, and so, so I just really love working with priests and, and especially on talking about walking with people. So really what I want to do with the next 45 minutes is talk about walking, what that journey looks like. And, um, and there's a couple of, of things that I reference. Um, one is that Pope St. Francis de Sales says this in Introduction to the Devout Life. He says, when fruits are whole, they may be stored up securely, some in straw, some in sand, or even amid their own foliage, but once bruised, nothing can ensure their existence except for sugar and honey, right? Nothing can preserve them except for sugar and honey. Even so, the purity which has never been tampered with may well be preserved to the end. But once it has ceased to exist, nothing can ensure its existence but the genuine devotion, which, as I have often said, is the very honey and sugar of the mind. 
So St. Francis de Sales uses this analogy of bruised fruit, where he says that there, there are some times you could go to a tree and pick an apple off the tree and it's never been bruised, it's perfectly preserved, and it's gonna last for a while. You can take it home, you can put it on the shelf, it, it can be there for a while. But if it's fallen to the ground and it's bruised, it's gonna keep rotting unless you do something different right now, right? Unless you preserve it in sugar and honey. And so there's a difference between the unbruised fruit that you just pick off the tree and it's perfect and the bruised fruit. And so the purity which has never been tampered with may well be preserved to the end, but there's a difference when it has ceased to exist. And, and so there are lots of devotions that we have in the church and those, there's lots of devotions about purity in the church. And like say three Hail Marys for purity every day, pray the rosary every day, go to Eucharistic adoration every day, start going to daily mass. I know a priest who was telling people like, so you just need to go to daily mass and then you'll stop doing that. Like that's ridiculous. There's tons of people I know who go to daily mass and they struggle pretty often. And, and so what, so all of those devotions, Angelic Warfare Society, like all the different devotions, they're really devotions about preserving purity that has never been tampered with. But when purity has ceased to exist, the only thing is the genuine devotion. And the genuine devotion means a complete surrender of my heart to our Lord, a complete entrusting of my heart to our Lord. It means training my heart so that when my heart is in distress, the first thing it wants to do is go to our Lord, All right? It's the first thing that it wants to do. You know, sometimes when my heart is in, is in distress, the first thing it wants to do is open up a bag of M&Ms, right? Am I the only one in the room? No, like sometimes our hearts are distressed and then we're like, why am I eating that? Like I have somebody really close to me died about a year ago and I was on my way to speak at a Sikh conference in Ohio and I got a phone call that morning from a friend and she was like, dad's going to the hospital and he's probably not gonna make it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm such a bad person because I haven't like called and checked on him in a while. And, and I'm like, get on the plane. And by the time I get off the plane, I got another message that he passed away that day. And, uh, and so, so I get to Ohio and I have my focus handler, which is the greatest thing about being a focus speaker is you get a handler and they just drive you places. And I was like, can we stop at a gas station so I can get some water? So I got water and like two pounds of pistachios. And then I got back to my hotel room and I'm just like sitting there pounding pistachios. And I'm just like eating, I, I can't stop eating pistachios. And after, I'm, after a while, I had to stop and just think like, what am I doing? Oh, I'm grieving. Like I'm feeling grief, but I think it's hunger. I just need Jesus right now. And, and so I was just like, Lord, I just need you to be with me right now. And like said some prayers for the person who died. And, but, but it's just a, it's a small example of like, sometimes the first thing our heart wants to go to is not the Lord. And, and living a life of purity, especially when we're bruised fruit is about training our heart to do that, right? Training our heart to seek him and to seek him first. And, and so every tool for breaking free from any kind of addiction is about training our heart to seek our Lord because it's our Lord is the one that does everything. And, and it's really also about learning to love again. John Paul II in Redemptor Homini says this. He says, man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible to himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him. If he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. Which means we're created for love and connection. We're created for love and connection. And from the time we were very small, we knew that to be true, right? We knew that to be true. You know, like how many of you have like a two-year-old in your household? or have ever had a two-year-old in your household, or have a little niece or nephew, or something like, when they're in distress, what do they do? Like they cry, or they usually run to a person, right? Like when you were a kid and you were in distress, you went to your mom because you knew you needed a person. Somewhere along the line, we all forget that we need a person because we're like, I need a person, but my person's not available, so M&Ms will have to do. 
right? Or it could be alcohol, or it could be a drug, or it could be masturbation. It could be any of those things that'll have to do because a person's not available. And, and then we become extremely self-reliant, and, and then our heart has to learn again what it means to need a person. And that's just being a Christian, right? It's just being a Christian. You know, the story of salvation maps out what the healing process looks like in a really beautiful way. And, and so the story of salvation, this entire story that's in Scripture, it can be told really quickly. Like, God created the world, and everything was good. Then something happened called original sin, and things became distorted, right? Distorted means you can still tell what it's supposed to be, but it's not clear. Or distortion might be it's off by two degrees, right? It's off by two degrees. I talk about that a lot with people, like when life is off by two degrees. It kind of looks like you're managing life okay, but if you're off by two degrees in 10 years, you're going to be off by like two miles. And, and so... So the family, when things were good, was like a mom and dad and their natural children. The family in distortion is the Old Testament family of Israel, right? which is the family of Jacob. You know, Jacob's story, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, so he goes to her father and asks permission. The father says, yes, you can marry my daughter. Go to the wedding tent and consummate the marriage. He goes and consummates the marriage, wakes up next morning, <laughs> wrong sister. He got tricked into marrying her uglier older sister, Leah. So then he goes back to the father and he complains like, you tricked me. And he says, of course, the oldest daughter has to marry first. Wait another seven years and you can marry the woman you love. So seven years later, he finally gets to marry the woman he loves, but she's infertile. So she says, well, take my concubine and have babies with her. And he does. And then Leah says, well, take my concubine and have babies with her. And he does. And then finally, Rachel has children. So the family in distortion is one dad, four moms, 12 brothers who all hate each other and sell Joseph to the Egyptians. That's just like the Kilcali family, right? It's like a lot of our families. And then what happens? Jesus enters into that family, right? Our Lord doesn't just enter into a family where everything is perfect. He enters into this distorted family of Israel. Matthew chapter one, every year at Christmas Eve, we have that genealogy. And most of the time, if you went to mass on Christmas Eve, you just sat there and you're like, why is it a genealogy? Or you're just listening if the deacon pronounces the names right. So it's like Abraham was the father of Isaac, was the father of Jacob. But if we knew scripture well, all of those names would carry with them a story and an emotional response. A story and an emotional response. Do you have anybody in your own family where their name comes up and everybody's like, oh yeah, drunk Uncle Joe from the wedding, right? Or do you have anybody in your family where you don't mention their name? Aunt Sue's second husband. Like, we don't really mention their name. And there's like these mystery characters. That's what that genealogy is like. There's this name that pops, Tamar. Tamar had two husbands die. She was waiting on the third brother to marry her. Never shows up. She hears her father-in-law's coming to town, Judah. So she dresses as a prostitute, goes and seduces him, gets pregnant by him, and then shows up with a baby and says, now you have to take care of me. Not the Holy Family of Nazareth or Rahab, who's a prostitute, or Ruth, who's not a member of the people of God, or the wife of Uriah, who we don't mention, because there's institutional shame and nobody really wants to remember what David, our hero and king and prophet, did when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed to cover it up. And so while all of those stories are in our head or those emotions are in our hearts, then we hear the words, then was born Jesus. Right? Then was born Jesus. What does that mean? That means if Jesus can be born into that family, he can be born into my family. And if Jesus can be born into that mess, he can be born into my mess. So that we can grow in clarity and virtue, and then comes the end of time or the end of our lives, and we enter into the kingdom of heaven. Like, that's all of our story. It's all of our story. In a very personal way, I was born into a world, and everything was good. Then something happened. My mom died when I was two. My dad was an alcoholic, and he was distant in the household when I was growing up. When I was 11, I got exposed to pornography magazines at a friend's house. When I was 14, I saw my first like VHS video at my brother's house. When I was in high school, I had weak masculine identity and the upperclassmen spread rumors about me that I was gay. All those things are things that happened and they caused a distortion about how I understood myself, how I understood God, how I understood relationships. But then something else happened. Jesus entered into my life to reveal to me who I am and to heal what was wounded, and to supply what I hadn't received, and to make me a new creation in him. 
so I can grow in clarity and virtue and hopefully someday get to heaven. That's our story. And, and along that story, John Paul II identifies two experiences as boundary experiences. And, and those experiences are what I would call the moment of rupture, which is original sin. It's, it's like this moment where something happens and it cripples my capacity to love. The other moment is this moment of redemption where Christ enters into a broken life in order to restore it, which happens at the cross. So the fathers of the church oftentimes tied these moments together. John Chrysostom has this beautiful reading in the Office of Readings on Saturdays for the Blessed Virgin Mary, where he talks about how the fall involved a man, a woman, and a tree, and redemption involved a man, a woman, and a tree. Or other places, the fathers of the church will talk about how Mary untied the knot that Eve tied. In our own lives, healing happens when we allow the moment of redemption to enter into the moment of rupture. Right? It means when we encounter our Lord in that place where there was a rupture. And whatever place it was where we forgot how to seek refuge in a person, we allow a person to enter who proves to us that he's trustworthy. And he proves that he's trustworthy through mercy, right? It is mercy that, that reveals his trustworthiness. And it's the way that he looks at us with love in the midst of our sinfulness that restores us. Something I talk about a lot, if you want to see the full version of it, Google me and go to my like, YouTube channel and you'll see like the longer Theology of the Body talk that I've done. But is that with all sexual sins, the, the kind of love that's corrupted is our ability to be loved by another. Like the problem with sins against sexuality isn't that we're selfish or it's not that I don't know how to sacrifice for others. It's that I don't know how to entrust my heart to another person. I don't know how to let somebody take care of me. I don't know how to let another person meet my needs. And all sin is about, letting, is about trying to meet my own needs instead of letting another person enter into that space. And so, so it's really a rupture in our relationship as sons and daughters. And the healing process is about restoring our relationship as sons and daughters. And I want to use the rich young man to illustrate that. Because the rich young man is a super interesting story. And the rich young man is also a story that shows us a pathway to healing in a kind of unexpected way. And so it starts off saying, someone approached him and said, teacher, what good must I do to gain eternal life? And, and so this first question the rich young man asks is like, what do I have to do to live forever? And so what's implied there is he has a desire to live Right? He has a desire to live. And for all of us who need healing in any area of our life, it starts with us desiring to live. And any kind of addiction, any kind of being stuck in sin, any kind of zoning out behaviors is really us saying, I just don't want to live my life right now. For at least the next three hours, I don't want to live my life right now. I kind of want to go not exist for a while. And, and this point just like really struck me a few years ago. Um, it was right before COVID. And I have this friend, Andy Comiskey, who runs the Living Waters Apostolate. And he lives in Kansas City. And we're only friends because our ministries overlap. And we kind of know about each other. We don't really know each other well. But Andy has a lot of spiritual gifts. And so sometimes he'll like pray for me. And then he'll like send me emails that are like these super cryptic things that actually touch on what's going on in my life. But I don't want to admit it. So he sends me this message right before COVID, and he's like, I don't know what's going on with you, but I get a sense that, that you're, you're, you're not well, and God just wants you to spend time with him right now. And, and I'm just like, this is weird. So, so I kind of blew it off. And then about a year later, I was, uh, I was in Kansas City, and I went to see Andy, and I was talking to him and his team, and, and he was like, so my team wants to pray over you before you leave. 
Okay. Now I'm not like a super charismatic Catholic kind of person. Like I, I don't, it's not really my jam. I don't do that. And, uh, but I was like, okay, yeah, I'll let you pray over me. It's okay. So I'm sitting there and they're all praying over me and getting words of knowledge and saying beautiful things about the ministry I do. And then Andy starts praying over me and he starts talking about like heart disease and death and early death and dying and wanting to live. And, and, and I'm just like, what the heck? <laughs> I'm walking out the door. Somebody hands me this pamphlet, like exercising the spirit of death. And I'm like, what the? So I'm driving home and I realize I kind of have that. Like, my mom died young. My mom died at 26. My dad died at 66. All my dad's brothers died in their 50s. Um, I kind of always imagined myself dying before retirement so I don't save for retirement. Um, I, I have fantasies about, like, cranking out my Summa Theologica on my deathbed, you know? And, like, I have all these, like, things. And I'm just like, what the, what? Like, I want to live my life. So I hadn't been to the doctor in like 10 years or the dentist in 10 years. So I made appointments and went to the doctor and I found out I had high cholesterol and sleep apnea and I was like pre-diabetic and I like all this kind of stuff. And so I went on cholesterol meds and got a sleep apnea machine and, and it started kind of taking care of myself a little bit more. But, but so, so there's awareness came in me like that I have to want to live my life. And there are some times where I just don't want to live my life. And, and so, so the first thing is, like, do you want to live? And, and so what's implied in the rich young man's question is that at some point he heard the gospel proclaimed to him. Like he heard Jesus say, I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And he said, I want that. I want to make sure I have that. So teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? And then our Lord says, stop sinning. Pretty simple. You know the commandments. Which ones? You shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So stop sinning. So, so this kind of order of things, hear the gospel preached, desire to live, stop sinning. Stop sinning is really important, right? It's really important. And there's a kind of a myth in the, in the church that like you can be a holy person and be enslaved to sin at the same time, right? It's a myth. It's not true. You know, like I, my favorite people I work with are priests and seminarians who are stuck in sin. And like their biggest obstacle is they think they're holy already. And I'm like, you know, if you just admit that you're enslaved to sin, then our Lord can redeem you. But there's this kind of myth. There's also a myth that, like, if somebody falls every 30 days, it's not really a problem. Like, when did Jesus say in the Gospels, I came that you have, may have life and have it more abundantly for 30 days at a time? Like, I came to set you free for three months. Like, like our Lord doesn't say that. Like, he wants us to be free for good. And it's possible to be free. Right? That's the most important thing. It's possible to be free. And, and I say that over and over and over again now because I found that, like I've said that in a few talks and people come up to me and they're like, nobody's ever said that before. But it's possible to be free. And, and our Lord desires us to be free. And, and the reason that stop sinning comes there is because when we stop sinning, it reveals our desires. Right? It reveals our desires. So what do I mean by that? If we're called to be sons and daughters of God, there are certain desires of the heart that correspond to being a son and daughter of God. So Mark and Deborah Laser talk about these in their book, The Seven Desires of Every Human Heart. They're to be heard and understood, to be affirmed, to be safe, to be included, to be chosen, to be blessed, and to be touched. Those are seven human desires. We all have them. And, and when those go unmet, we have a tendency to get into trouble. 
right? Like whenever people have a fall of any kind, it could be a cookie dough fall, it could be a sexual fall, it could be a gambling fall, whatever their fall is. It usually is preceded by a resentment because they don't feel heard and understood or chosen or included or safe or blessed. And, and so, so our behaviors tend to mask those desires. And so when we stop the behavior, when we stop sinning, it reveals the desire. And then we can be in touch with that desire. Like so many people will say something like, and this is usually after about three months of freedom, like, Father, I'm having these things called feelings, and I don't really know what they are. Like, exactly, because if you've been numbing out for your whole life, like, you don't feel your feelings. I was talking to a woman once, and she was like, Father, my husband doesn't have, he doesn't like groups, he doesn't do, he doesn't do relationships, he's German. Like, it's not because he's German, it's because he's an addict. Addicts don't do relationships. Like, it's not, it has nothing to do with his ethnicity. It's nothing to do with his Germanness. Like, I, I can't stand that. It's like when you have that, like, jerk priest, and you're like, well, he's Irish, so it's okay. <laughs> like, we can't blame those things. And, and so when we stop sinning, it reveals the desire of our heart. And then we can ask our Lord to meet the desire. And, and so, so, again, this, this became very obvious to me. Um, it's about a year and a half ago. I woke up on my birthday. I was uh, 247 pounds at the time. And, uh, and I just, like looked like crap, felt like crap, and I was tired of being fat. <clears throat> and so I have this friend who lost like 100 pounds on a food program. And it's kind of one of those food programs where you eat like six times a day and you eat these 100 calorie bars and then you eat like one salad. And, uh, and so I was like, okay, I'm doing that food program. So I like order all this stuff and I go on this food program so I can only eat once every three hours and it's like a 100 calorie protein bar. And, um, and so at the time, I was stationed, stationed at a church. I wasn't in charge of it. There was an administrator that never came around. And every time I tried to do something to help the people at the church, he would sort of like get in the way because he felt like I was threatening his authority or something. And there were a couple of other situations that happened that just really, really, really made me angry. Because sometimes we get angry at each other, right? Like, happens. And, uh, and so, so something happened. I'm super angry at a brother priest. And I'm staring at this bag of Dove chocolates on the kitchen table. And I had an epiphany moment where I realized, if I wasn't on this food program, I'd be eating that entire bag of chocolate right now. Like, I need Jesus. And I was just like, Lord, you need to take care of him. He's your priest. You called him to the priesthood. You need to sort him out. I can't fix him. I can't fix my bishop. I can't fix my diocese. I can't fix it. You need to fix this. I need a savior. And I need you to be the savior. And I'm going to retire from being the savior. And I just need you to take care of me. Because I'm feeling really misunderstood right now. And if I can approach our Lord in that place, then he can be the one that reveals the fact that he understands me. But I can't do any of that if I'm eating that whole bag of Dove chocolates. Because then I'm just like replacing negative emotions with positive sensations, right? And that's another like addiction kind of idiom that I think is really helpful, right? Addiction is when we replace negative emotions with positive sensations, right? So I'm feeling grief, so I'm gonna replace it with the sensation of eating two pounds of pistachios. Or it can be our sense of touch, or it can be our sense of sight, or it can be our sense of hearing. Like, like we, we can have these ways in which we replace negative emotions with positive sensations. So if I stop sinning, then it reveals my desires. <clears throat> so then the rich young man says to the Lord, okay, all of those commandments I've observed, so I've stopped sinning now. And then this, this is a really important line. It says this, All of these I have observed. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him. That's not what I was looking for. Hmm. It's 
in another place. Jesus looks at him and he loves him. And then he says to him, go sell everything you have. And so Jesus looks at him and he loves him. And so when we stop sinning, we can notice the look of love. Right? Noticing the look of love means, like, I notice that the Lord is the one who can meet my desires. And the look of love is the moment of mercy. Right? It is the moment of mercy. And, and mercy is, is a moment in which we realize that we're loved at a time in which we feel most unlovable. And, and so again, like bringing the moment of redemption into the moment of rupture, there's a couple of places in scripture where we see that happen. Um, and mercy is the vehicle for conversion. In Divas and Misericordia, John Paul, John Paul II says, the church professes and proclaims conversion and conversion to God always consists in discovering his mercy. That is in discovering the love which is patient and kind as only the creator and father can be. The love to which the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ is faithful to the uttermost consequences in the history of his covenant with man, even to the cross and death and resurrection of the Son, conversion to God is always the fruit of the rediscovery of this Father who is rich in mercy. And so conversion happens when we notice the look of love. And mercy is given, or maybe I should say it this way, mercy is received when our hearts are prepared to receive justice. It's a really important thing. It's a really important thing. So in scripture, there's three stories of mercy that I think are most profound for me. Um, so one is the prodigal son. The prodigal son goes to the father, says, I want my inheritance now. The father gives him his inheritance now. He squanders it all on prostitutes. He ends up in the pigsty. We all know the story. And he says to himself, he comes to his senses. And he says this, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In other words, I know who I am, I know what I've done, and I know what I deserve. And so the prodigal son goes back to the father expecting justice, like asking for justice. He doesn't sit in the pigsty and say, the father is so merciful, I'm sure he's going to let me back in his house if I just go back to him and it's going to be like it never happened. Right? He doesn't say that. Father of sin against heaven against you, I no longer deserve to be called your son. And as he goes back to the father and he starts that speech and he says, I no longer deserve to be called your son. He's interrupted by the father who says, bring a robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet because the son of mine, the son of mine was lost and now he's found again. And he hears the words, my son, And, and the Father's love crashes into his heart that's prepared to receive justice. The Samaritan woman at the well, she goes to the well in the middle of the day. Why? Because she doesn't want to see people. Easiest explanation. Everybody goes in the morning. She goes in the middle of the day. When I was studying in Rome, I was in studying like the truth, beauty, and goodness of God's plan for marriage and family when you come from a family like mine just shines a big bright light on all the ways that my family's messed up or that I'm messed up. And it caused a ton of agitation in my heart, which actually led to a lot of depression and avoidance. And, um, and so I was watching like 18 hours of TV a day when I was in grad school sometimes because I just didn't want to deal with life. I didn't want to live my life. And I also didn't want to see people because when you study in Rome and you're like studying with all the priests who are in grad school, you know, like you go to lunch and everybody's like, how many books did you read today? I'm sitting there going, I watched three seasons of One Tree Hill this week. <laughs> Do you know what's going on with Brooke Davis? Um, anyways, only a couple of you know what I'm talking about. Um, so I just didn't go to meals. So I would order a sack meal and then I would wait till the middle of the day when everybody takes a nap and I'd go to the elevator and I'd go down in the basement and then I sneak over to the kitchen. I'd grab my sack meal. I go back to the elevator, get back to my room. Nobody saw me successful day back to one tree hill. Right. And, uh, and I did that for a long time and, and it was really my shame because I didn't want to really face who I was. 
And, uh, and that's kind of what the, what the Samaritan woman at the well is doing is she's going there not expecting to see people. And then one day she goes there and there's this person there. And he says, give me a drink. And she's like, don't you know you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and Jews don't talk to Samaritans? Stop talking to me. If you knew who was asking you, you would ask me and I would give you a drink. You don't even have a bucket. Shut up. Stop talking to me. The water I will give you, you'll never be thirsty again. Oh, wait, that sounds good, because if I'm never thirsty, I don't have to come here in the middle of the day and be reminded of my shame. Give me that water always. Okay, go get your husband. Crap. I don't have a husband. No, you don't have one. You've had five. I know who you are. I know who you are. And there's this moment, our Lord wants to make sure that she knows that he knows who she is when he offers her living water. So that there's no doubt in her mind. There's no yeah buts in her mind. Do you ever have like yeah buts when you hear a talk like this? Jesus loves you so much. Yeah, but Father, if you knew. <laughs> he loves everybody else. <laughs> like if you knew what I did, you wouldn't tell me that. There's no yeah buts because he makes sure that she knows that he knows everything. And he offers her living water. And it's a moment that pierces through her shame. And then she goes and preaches this gospel that sounds like this. Come and let me show you somebody who told me everything I've done. He knows me. Like He sees me. He, she encountered the look of love. And then the woman caught in adultery is caught in the very act of committing adultery. All her sin is made public now. All of her secrets are made public now. She's like brought before our Lord. Master, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? And our Lord bends down and writes in the sand. And what does he write in the sand? I don't really think it matters. I think he's probably just lowering himself into her line of sight. Because if I was, all of my sins were made public, I'd probably be looking at the ground. And so he bends down to write in the sand as if to say like, hey, I'm here. And then he stands up and says, whoever among you has no sin can cast the first stone. And then he goes back down to the ground. And he places his look of love within her gaze of shame. And somewhere in that moment, she notices how he looks at her. And in her worst moment, in this moment where everything is made known, in this moment where everything she hates about herself is made known, he's looking at her with love. And then after everybody leaves, he stands up and he says, woman, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And the no one, sir, includes herself. The no one, sir, includes herself. So somewhere in the midst of the look of love, she starts to see herself the way our Lord sees her instead of the way the crowd sees her. And then our Lord says, go and sin no more. Right? Then our Lord says, go and sin no more. And she just goes after him. And so she then surrenders her life to him. And so back to the rich young man. Jesus looks at him, loves him, and says, go sell everything you have, and then come follow me. And then he goes away sad. And going away sad is, is the consequence of, follow, of following our Lord sometimes. And, and that sadness isn't necessarily like a bad sadness because it just means that like sometimes we have to grieve. And it's okay to acknowledge the fact that we have to grieve. Like I have to grieve egg McMuffins and breakfast burritos. Because like, I used to live on McDonald's food all the time. I haven't eaten fast food in two years, but um, but it, but I might like grieve. Like I have to just say like, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. When people have had like an addictive tendency ever since they were 12 or 13, it's probably been their best friend that got them through their life, all their hardest times. 
If it's been the thing that you've taken refuge in, and now you're, you're saying, you're basically saying like, you've been a good friend, you helped me through a lot, but you're kind of becoming like that friend that becomes like a really like super possessive friend and I need to have other people in my life. So I'm gonna break up with you. And so that I can now let our Lord do for me what you've been doing for me. So sometimes people use the analogy of like hiring people to do a job. So I need to fire my addiction and hire Jesus to meet my needs. Right? And, and that's really just like what being a Christian is. Right? And every Christian says no to sin so that we can say yes to our Lord. Right? It's just being a Christian. It's just being a Christian. Which is why I said like my the favorite thing about the fact that I do what I do is I get to watch people have conversions. And it's really what I signed up to be a priest for. Like I became a priest so that because I think people should stop sinning and like embrace the gospel. And, and also I do what I do because I believe Jesus is a real person and that everything he said is true, including the fact that you can have joy. Because if, you, if it's not true, well then what are we doing? What are any of us doing being Catholic if it's not true that we can have joy? And, and if we have trouble experiencing it, then we just have to keep revisiting that place of mercy and letting that moment of rupture enter into, or the moment of redemption enter into those moments of rupture. And sometimes it might be because we haven't repented. Like sometimes there are wounds we've experienced and our Lord needs to enter into that wounded place. You know, like one meditation I always recommend to people who struggle with pornography is to invite our Lord into the first exposure moment. There was a dad who brought his 12-year-old son in to see me and and he had been struggling. And uh, so the kid went to ask his parents for help, which is amazing, right? Because like how many of us went to our parents the first time we were exposed? Good job. Didn't yeah. How many of your parents rocked the puberty talk? Like my parents rocked the puberty talk, right? None of our parents rocked the puberty talk. How many of us rocked puberty? Right? Nobody rocks puberty either. These are just important things to point out because sometimes people have a lot of shame because they didn't rock puberty, but like nobody gets to rock puberty. It just doesn't happen. We're all awkward. Um, so anyway, so this kid's about 12 and he, his dad brings him in to see me. And, uh, and so I was sitting with him and his dad and I said, okay, so tell me about the first time you ever saw pornography. And he said it was in fourth grade, at the end of fourth grade. Okay, where were you? Were you at home, at school, at a friend's house, on the bus, with a, like, I was at home, I was in the basement, on the computer, kind of in the public area. And what I'm gonna try to do is paint the picture for him of his first exposure moment. So did you find it? Like, how did you, how did you find it? Like, did it pop up? Did somebody tell you about it? Did somebody show you it? And well, I was playing a video game and there was like a pop-up and I clicked on it. There were pictures and I clicked on those and I got videos. One time I was looking for innocent videos and I ended up with a pornography version of those innocent videos. How'd it make you feel? So I want to know like what happens in his body. And, and so my heart was racing and, and I felt like excited and I felt disgusting at the same time and I wanted to look away, but I couldn't look away. So now I'm going to try to like introduce the moment of redemption. So, so if Jesus was in the room with you that day, what do you think he would do? Oh, Father, I don't want to think about that. Just kind of like, where, would he, where do you think he would be in the room? Well, he'd probably be in the corner like shaking his head at me. That's interesting. What do you think he would say? And he goes, Father, Jesus would say that's bad for you. It's a sin. I'm hurting people. I should know better. He's probably repeating all the things that people told him when they were trying to be helpful. Father, it's just like I'm taking the nails and driving them into Jesus' hands. And then I just looked at him and I said, you're a kid. Like, you're just a kid. And if Jesus was there with you, he'd be angry at pornography, but not at you. And he'd just kneel down in front of you and pull your head into his shoulder and say, I'm sorry this happened to you. This shouldn't have happened to you. 
I will always love you. I will never leave you. I'm sorry this happened to you. I will always love you. This shouldn't have happened to you. I will never leave you. I will always love you. Sorry, just over and over and over and over. Till the tears started welling up in his eyes because he was encountering this father who's rich in mercy. Right? Nobody's first exposure is their fault. There's nobody on the planet whose first exposure is their fault. People who are old, they found pornography in the woods. It was a thing. Ask your grandparents. Um, people that are young, like the woods are in your pocket. <clears throat> you know, like it's just like on your phone. And we don't live in a world where like the digital world plays by the same rules as the brick and mortar world. Like the brick and mortar world, you have to be a certain age to go to an adult bookstore. Digital world, you can go wherever you want to go. Like it doesn't make any sense. And, and so like giving ourselves permission Right? To just let our Lord have mercy on us, especially in those first moments. Kind of another like, place and, and other moments of rupture, because there are often times, you know, and when people get farther along in recovery, they start working on like, the ways I've hurt people. And, and sometimes like, we have sins that we didn't really repent of. Like, do you ever have sins that like, pop for you? You're been like driving down the road and you're like, oh crap, I hope nobody, like, like you just think about like that one thing that happened like five years ago. Um, and you know, you confessed it, but like for some reason it's still bothering your conscience. <clears throat> and then somebody's like, you don't be scrupulous. Well, maybe you just didn't repent yet. Like that would be another explanation. Sometimes people are scrupulous. Usually if you're scrupulous, you also have OCD. Um, otherwise maybe you just didn't repent and that's, it's worth exploring. And so I had something like that in my own life and, um, and it would just pop once in a while, you know, like this fear would pop and, and I confessed it. It was like something from my twenties and I'm pretty sure I slid it into a general confession in between like 150 other sins, like hoping the priest didn't notice. That's how I confessed it. And uh, I went on a healing retreat with Dr. Bob Schutz and, and Bob is, he's a great, he's, he's. I have a lot of affection for him. And in the beginning of the retreat, he's like, so just pray to the Holy Spirit about what the Holy Spirit wants to heal in your life. And, and I went on this retreat, like I'm going to rock this retreat because I've done so much of my own work. I've been in therapy for years and I've been 12 step and I'm, I'm like, I'm doing good right now. And, and so I, so like this memory starts coming up and I was just like, I don't think so, Jesus. I'm not, I'm not doing that. So I go to get prayed with the first day. Cause there's like two times where you have somebody pray with you and, and, uh, and I was like, let's just like, I have this memory with my mom. And so we start praying over that. And then at the end, Bob's like, there's something else there. I don't know. So I go to chapel that night and I'm sitting in chapel and I was like, Jesus, do you really want to go there? And he's like, yes. So I start to go back to this memory and this is something that I did. And, uh, in a way that I'd hurt somebody. And, um, and I just felt like sick, like double over nauseous, sick. And then our Lord brought an image into my mind of Jean Valjean from Les Miserables. And uh, kind of this idea that like, you know, Jean Valjean steals the silverware, he gets caught, he goes, he, but they, he gave it to me, and he goes back, and the bishop's like, I did give it to him, but you forgot the best thing, I'm give, giving you more. And he gives him this super mercy, right? It's like a super mercy. And so in that moment, our Lord was basically saying to me, you never got away with anything, I gave you a super mercy. Like, I know what I'm doing with your life. I gave you a super mercy. And then I'm sitting there just thinking to myself, like, I don't think so. I, I just don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Like, I don't know if I'm comfortable being loved that much. You ever feel like you're not comfortable being loved that much? Or somebody's like, I really care about you. You're like, you shouldn't. <laughs> and uh, and so I, so I kind of left that night. I went to bed. And the next morning, I'm all kinds of disorganized inside my heart and um, not really knowing how I felt about my time with a Jesus the night before. And Sister Miriam James Heidlin gets up to give her little presentation for the day and she says, so now I'm gonna show this video clip from Les Miserables. 
And I was like, ah, okay, I'll take the super mercy. <laughs> and, um, and then there was some more time, you know, like working through with my spiritual director and my therapist. And, and, but it was really about making peace with my story, right? Making peace with my story. Like sometimes when we have shame, like you don't have to go and tell everybody everything about your life. But we have to be at peace with it in such a way that if it was ever to come out, we'd be okay with it. And we're just like, yeah, that was my life. And, and this is like, I am like, now I have a chance to heal those things. And, and I've been living my life in a way to make up, to make amends for that. And, and I can live with that. I don't have to live with like, oh, I didn't do it. Or I don't want to get in trouble or like, like we, we can be free of that, you know? And, and that's part of, the work of conversion, right? It's just part of the work of conversion. And it's not specialized for people with addictions. It's just that people with addictions can't live their life unless they do the conversion things. So there's kind of some people will say like, I'm a grateful addict because they can't live in another way. They can't like fake their way through life. It's impossible. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we ask your blessing upon each of these, your sons and daughters. We ask you to bring healing to just any Thoughts or memories that have come to mind in the course of tonight's talk. We pray especially for all people who just struggle to be loved by you and who just have had obstacles to love in their hearts. I ask you to encourage them and give them just the strength to do whatever it takes to be in relationship with you and with your son and send them the people that they need to walk with them. And through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and all the saints, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's been a great joy to be with you all. Thank you.